A mother told me the story of being at home with uh, her daughter and her daughter's daughters. They were watching online. They were uh, doing their best to follow along with the scriptures, as many of you do, had their piece of paper for taking notes. The girls were uh, younger in age, and so rather than having them write extensively and fill in the blanks and all of that, uh, the mother had provided them a piece of paper that had certain words on the handout, like the word God and Bible and Jesus. And maybe some of you have done this with your own children, and so then every time the girls would hear the preacher, just happened to be me that morning, uh, mentioned the word uh, that was in the box, he'd put a little check mark. Okay. Well, the mother shared the story because she said that particular day, uh, the sermon was extra heavy on Jesus. And the little girls were putting their little tally marks and just filling up the little box of Jesus. And all of a sudden, the little girl had this very disturbed look on her face. She said, Mom, I don't have any room for Jesus. It's easy in this time of year to think we don't have any more room for Jesus. Even for people who love Jesus, we got all of these other things happening in our lives. And so I hope that as we have entered this study on the incarnation and thinking about where we're talking about Jesus a lot, that we remember not just to leave room for Jesus, but to make room for him. I'm curious, have you ever heard the phrase, I've got your six? I've got your six is a phrase uh, that's used sometimes in the military, sometimes in law enforcement. Those of you who have served in either of those capacities probably are familiar with that phrase, I've got your six. It's an interesting phrase because it doesn't, you know, it's, it, well, what do you mean by I've got your six? That phrase, I've got your six, originated, uh, as far as we can tell from history, from World War uh, I. My clicker's not working. You may have to advance it for me, gentlemen. Uh, go ahead, next slide. Please. <laughs> All right, if you need anything, come down. Together we stand and sing. <laughs> It's, uh, it's not uh, working for me. Well, this is awkward, isn't it? <laughs> the phrase originated with World War II pilots. And those pilots, as you're seeing it, there we go, um, who they, would, they were obviously flying and, and uh, flying these World War I biplanes. And in that position, shooting down an enemy plane was a new part of warfare. It was something that they obviously hadn't done because they hadn't flown in warfare before. And so there's a couple of ways you can do that. The first is you, you can face the other plane head on and shoot directly at him. Or the other way to do it is come from behind him. And in the military, they use, they came up with this, uh, if just think of an old style analog clock with the hands. Uh, if you're in the center of the clock, then straight in front of you would be 12 o'clock. And behind you would be your 6 o'clock position. Well, when you're flying, if you're a pilot, obviously if you're trying to shoot down the other guy, the best place to be is that that guy's 6 o'clock. But the most vulnerable position is your 6 o'clock. 
It's the part behind you. And especially if you're a pilot, you know, looking behind you is not a great option all the time. And seeing behind you what's, what's happening and who's back there uh, leaves you very vulnerable. And so when these pilots would fly these planes together, what happened was uh, they would say, you know, I've got your six. And that was a phrase meaning I've got you covered. I've got your back. And so thinking about that phrase, let me ask you. Who's got your six in your life? Who is the person or group of people who watch your back? Who look out for you? Who see when you're in a vulnerable spot? I've got your six meant that this person had your best interest. They, They had your most vulnerable part of you covered. Who does that for you? When you're, when you're, that's the right answer, exactly right. Yeah, Patrick, Patrick is, he put the whole sermon right there. Okay, but thank you, but, but give me a little more time, okay? So, <laughs> we, we, in your life, when you think about who has your six, when you're young, let me go to you, follow me here. Um, when you're young, this is something you don't realize. You, you get about this age and you think, my parents are always on my back. Your parents always on your back? About rules or curfew or, or, or silly things that they tell you to do and you don't want to do them. And you think, my parents are always on my back. But in, in truth, and if you don't realize this now, you will. Your parents are really the only ones that have your back. They're the only ones who generally wake up in the morning and want what's best for you. Now, whether you realize that or not, your parents have your six. And if you don't have parents that have your six, you say, well, you don't know my parents. Okay, and that's possible, okay? But, but I want you to know, especially if you're a Christian, you're a part of the church, the church has your six, or it should. Maybe it's your spouse who has your six. Maybe it's a best friend who has your six. Maybe it's a coworker. I don't know who it is, or maybe, maybe there's more than one. But, but ask yourself that question, who has your six? Who has you covered? who has your most vulnerable spot. And there's one who's always had your most vulnerable spot. We're going to talk about him today. Patrick already gave the answer, but we'll go ahead and go through the slides anyway. That's what this series is about, when God showed up. And we've been talking about how God was among us. We went to the idea of John's gospel, which is the word became flesh. So God dwelt among us. Then we talked about how God is for us uh, and we went to Luke's gospel where he says, for unto you a Savior is born. If God is for you, then who can be against you? So this idea of God being for you, and today we're going to look at Matthew's gospel. So I want you to turn to the gospel of Matthew as we study the incarnation, the time when God showed up in our world. And Matthew chapter 1 is on page 1,035, if you're not sure where Matthew is. Matthew chapter 1, page 1,035 in the Pew Bible. Not every Bible, but in the Pew Bible. Verse 18, we're going to read verses 18 through 23. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband, Joseph, being a just man 
and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. God is with us, and we're going to think about that because we know he was with us in this very moment when Jesus would, would come into Mary's womb through the Holy Spirit, and when Jesus was born as an infant, and when he was alive here on earth for 33 years, he was with us. But did you know it's a little deeper than that? We're going to think through that for the rest of the this, this sermon. The first thing that we notice from Scripture is that he has been with us from the beginning. Now, verse 18 says, Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. You need to know that there's two ways of thinking about Christ. The first is in the flesh, the incarnate. The, when, when the Word put on flesh, that was a time, for a time in history. But there's an, another aspect of thinking about Christ which is outside of time, the eternal nature, the deity, and, and he has been with us from the beginning. When we look at Genesis chapter 3, God is right there with us, and Jesus is right there with us. Uh, he says, um, I'm sorry, I, I said chapter 3, but let me first go to chapter 1, verse 26. Then God said, let us make man in our image and after our likeness. Okay, so we understand that there's a plurality here. There's a we and there's an us and there's an our. So we understand that it's God, it's Christ, it's the Holy Spirit. In Genesis chapter 3, after human beings fall to sin, Jesus is right there. Look in chapter 3, just one page over. Um, and this is after they've sinned, and they're trying to give their excuses. And God says this to the serpent, verse 15, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and hers. He shall bruise your head. You shall bruise his heel. So, Right here in the beginning, and this is, you get the sense, this is right after they sinned, God is right there telling them about the Savior. Now, whether or not they realize that, I don't know. But God, all throughout Scripture, from Genesis to Revelation, has this way of speaking and saying two things at once. Two things that are simultaneously true. And the more that you study Scripture, the more often you see Jesus right there in every jot, in every tittle, in every Scripture. You see God telling us about Christ. And that's what he's doing in Genesis chapter 3. He's saying, there's one coming 
the seed of woman. Now, from a reproductive, biological, purely physical, we understand that reproduction happens. The seed comes from the male. This one would be different. There's going to be a human being who would be different and it would be the seed of woman. He's saying, he's saying something there. Now, whether Adam and Eve understood biology or not, what he was saying was true. He's predicting the virgin birth of Christ. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Saying that the enemy, speaking to the serpent here, you're going you're gonna to wound him, but he's going to crush you. You're going to hurt him, but he's going to conquer you. After the fall, God is still there. Look at this, verse 21. He's, he's doled out the punishments, okay, for, for Eve, you know, the, the pain and childbearing to which every woman since then has been saying, thank you so much, Eve. We appreciate that. To Adam, he says, listen, you're going to have curses on the ground. You're going to earn by the sweat of your brow. When you, when you get up and go out and kill something and drag it home, and you do that by the sweat of your brow, that's part of the curse. Okay? It's, it's part of what you will do because of Adam's sin. And he, and he also gives likewise a punishment, which we've already talked about, to the serpent. Then, after the punishment, God does this merciful and gracious thing. The Lord God, verse 21 of chapter 3, the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Now, you need to pay attention there because I'm, I'm not a hunter, okay? And so the first few times I read that, I didn't really think about it much, but but a skin comes from an animal, and you don't take a skin off a live animal. In that moment, after their sin, God, in some way, made a sacrifice. A blood sacrifice to take care and to cover the nakedness and the shame of Adam and Eve. Now remember, they had tried to clothe themselves. God made a clothing from a sacrifice. So there's lots of different examples where we see Christ foreshadowed, predicted, prophesied about again and again. And he's been with us from the beginning. If you count up the chapters in this book, I took some time this week and counted out all of the chapters and just, added, no, I just Googled it. Um, there are 1,189 chapters in this book from Genesis chapter 1 to Revelation chapter 22. Two of those chapters are when everything was good. And the other 1,187 chapters is the message of how God fixed what wasn't good. How God redeemed man from his sin and how God sent a Savior to do that. The second thing that we see is this. If you're a history buff, you'll like this. Christ has been with us throughout History, verse 22 of, of our key text in Matthew 1 says this, All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. You see, you and I are so finite. We have such a small window of time. The scripture says 70 or 80 years if we're strong. Okay? Most people 
if you live to age 70 or 80 or beyond that, and it comes time to your funeral, you'll hear the remark, well, they had a good, full life. But God is outside of time, outside of, of, of finite time of beginnings and ends and birthdays and death, death days. So, so God works over the, the eons of history, the centuries God works. And, and so through this story, 1,189 chapters, we have centuries of history. Now, what we see in this is Christ is present all throughout the centuries of history that the Bible records. When Adam sinned in Genesis chapter 3, God had in mind a second Adam, a more perfect Adam, or as C.S. Lewis said, the first full man who ever lived in Christ Jesus. When Cain killed his brother Abel, God had in mind a son that would be killed by his brothers. When evil was destroyed by the flood in the story of Noah, God had in mind a vessel from the uh, a vessel of salvation in the flood of sin. You see, in, in each of these pictures, we have to look for Christ Jesus. That's what the Bible is about. It, it's easy in this world, and I've done it too, where I look, Lord, Give me a scripture that applies to me and my life right now. Lord, show me something. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Well, eh, it's a powerful verse, but that's not really talking about you and your desire to get to the next level of your job. That's not really talking about you winning your next football game. The scripture is Christ-centered, not me-centered. When we take a Christ-centered view, we begin to see Christ in all the things. When Abram offered his only son Isaac, God had in mind another lamb that he would offer, his only son. You see, we we begin to see those pictures, those stories, not just as good stories, entertaining and, and interesting. We begin to look for Christ and see Christ in all things. All history centers on Christ. This book centers on Christ, but our world, whether we like it or not, centers on Christ Jesus. Even for the most ardent, ardent, vehement atheist, the skeptic who wants nothing to do with God cannot help when you ask the question, what day is it? Ah, uh, well, I guess it would be December 19th, 2021. December 19th, 2021. 2,021 years since what? You can't get away from it. You can't escape him. He's the centerpiece of history and the centerpiece of humanity and God's gift to us. When we think about the prophecies of Jesus, we, we see the the, 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 again and again, Genesis chapter 49, verse 10, we're told 2,000 years before Jesus that he would be, that the scepter would not depart from the tribe of Judah. So we knew that the Savior would be of the tribe of Judah. Micah chapter 5, verse 2, this is probably 750 years before Christ. It says, uh, but you, O Bethlehem, are too little to be among the clans of Judah, but from you shall come forth one who is to be 
a ruler. That's 750 years before Christ came. He's speaking to Bethlehem. Oh, little town of Bethlehem. Born of a virgin, Isaiah chapter 7. And this is the prophecy that Isaiah quotes. Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14. In the middle of this encounter with Ahaz, the prophet says this, Therefore, this is page 734 if you care to follow along. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. This is a repeat of what God said back in Genesis chapter 3, the seed of woman. This is some 700 years before Christ. Seven full centuries of time would pass before they would see the fulfillment of that prophecy. So, if we understand that Christ wasn't an accident or an afterthought. He was, as Paul will say in Galatians, he came in the fullness of time. Galatians 4.4, 4, God sent forth his son, born of a woman. And so what we may take for granted has been, all of history has been pointing to Christ Jesus and pointing to what he came to do. And he came on a mission. He came on a mission. We talked about this a little bit last week. He came to save us from our sin. Verse 21 of Matthew's gospel says, She will bear a son. You shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. The Bible is a 100% truthful book. It's true about the goodness and mercy and grace of God, but also true about the wickedness and evil and sin and depravity of man. It's all right here. It's a strange thing. It's such a truthful book that if you were to make the Bible into a movie, word for word from the text, the Bible would be X-rated. There would people be offended if I were to read some verses of Scripture from the pulpit. Does that blow your mind? It, it is that real of a book because it's talking about the, the honest truthfulness of the sinfulness and the, the depths to which human beings can go. You just need to understand that those people who say the Bible is a boring book haven't read the Bible at all. They don't understand how honest it is about the goodness and the glory of God and the wickedness and the evil and the depravity of human beings. You want an example of that? Just look up, not in here, but look up in Matthew, Matthew chapter 1. He has just finished the genealogies of Jesus. The genealogy, uh, and it's slightly different from Luke's, but this is... The genealogy for a Jewish person was important. The genealogy was proof that Jesus had Jewish ancestry. So that's exactly what Matthew does. But what's interesting is that in this genealogy, Matthew gives us a 42-generation connection all the way back to Father Abraham. And it's an unusual genealogy for a couple of different reasons. Number one, there's a lot of 
there are several different women in there. That wasn't typical in a genealogy. Number two, there are Gentiles within the story of the genealogy of Christ. Canaanites and Hittites and Moabites. And there are even more scandalous Bible characters. Judah's in here. The story of Judah in Genesis chapter 38 is the story of him impregnating his daughter-in-law. I told you, it's it's a very honest book. But that weird story from Genesis 38 is part of the genealogy of Jesus. It's the story of Rahab who runs a brothel in Jericho. That story is found in Joshua chapter 2. And Rahab's right here in the middle of the genealogy of Jesus. David is in here. The story of David, King David, who did a lot of things and a lot of good things, but he was also an adulterer and a murderer. And it says, David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. She has such a history, they don't even put her name in there. My point is this, every family has its skeletons in the closet. Every family has its sin. Every, you, you, you go to the holidays and you think, oh my goodness, you know, maybe you've got stuff in your family that you aren't proud of, st- stories that you don't tell your children and your grandchildren. Jesus had that stuff too. You think your family has trouble. Jesus' family put the fun in dysfunction, okay? They did, and it's right there. But we gloss over that. We think, oh, it's just a list. It's just, we don't, not really important. Let's get to the the main course here. But in that genealogy, he is reminding us that despite their sin and despite our sin, God never left us. What I mean by that is he never forsook us. He never gave up on us. He's always been with us. So, who has your six? Maybe a friend, maybe a family member, maybe a spouse, maybe a co-worker, a parent, or a boss. But if no one else, if no one else, God, through Christ Jesus, has always had your six. He's always known that sin made you vulnerable. That he came to save you and that he's been with you. He's been with us from the beginning. He's been with us through history. He's been with us through sin. And he doesn't, he's not okay with sin. 1 Timothy chapter 1 verse 15. He says, Christ Jesus came, in the world, came into the world to save sinners. To save sinners. You have to understand, we call Jesus Savior. It's important to ask, what are we being saved from? From sin. Some churches don't take sin seriously. Oh, God loves you. He's gracious. He's good. He just winks. Just pat you on the back. Keep on going. No! He sent His Son to save you from that. To redeem you from that. That you might repent from that. He came to save you. Not to overlook it. Not to be okay. Not to just, not to just wink and move on. 
when we think of the goodness of God through Christ Jesus and how he's been with us from the beginning, he's done all of that to save us, to redeem us, to show us that he's got our six, he's got our back. And and you need to understand when I say God's got your six, what I don't mean by that, let me be very clear, is that God's cool with whatever you're cool with. That God's your best friend and he doesn't, have, he doesn't want you to change. He's, he's cool. Whatever makes you happy is what makes him happy. That is not what I mean when I say God's got your six. My point is he's, he's always been after you. He's always known that sin was your weakness, your weak spot, your most vulnerable part. The entire story of this is the story of God never giving up on you and I. From the beginning to the centuries of human history and sin and wickedness and depravity, God never gave up. And, and yet, he, he didn't overlook sin. He couldn't have done that and been a just God. But what he did was the very same thing that he did back in Genesis 3. He made a sacrifice of blood that he might cover us from our our nakedness and our, our spiritual shame and our sin. God's always had our six because he always had in mind his son. No father has a plan to give up his son unless it's for something Earth-changing, life-chattering, and in in God's case, eternity-changing. That's what I mean by God has your six. With Jesus, God is with us. And so if you're struggling, if you're hurting, if you've been in the muck of sin, you need to know that you can be washed and made clean. That God hasn't given up on you, and so I hope you, Don't give up on you. Jesus, you see, when he came was the moment when God showed up. Colossians 2.9 says, For in him the fullness of deity dwells bodily. By sending his own son in the flesh, Romans 8 says, In the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. When Jesus came, he came to redeem us. And that's what this story is all about. And so, wherever you are, I hope you know that God's got your six. That he hasn't given up on you. That he did all of this and gave his only son for you. And may we remember in the, in the depths and despair and the valleys of life that God never gives up. And he won't give up. Now the question whether we'll give up, nah, that's another, another question. But if we won't give up, surely God will not give up on us. This morning, I want to tell you the good news, wherever you are, that Christ Jesus came to save you from your sin. And to do that, he laid down his own life. He spilled his blood. He died a criminal's death and rose again three days later. He did that for you. You say, well, that's great, but how do I, what do I do about that? How do I, I, that grace sounds good. How do I open the gift to use an analogy? He's given us the gift. Are we going to open it? 
Well, some preachers would say, listen, right now you just need to pray a prayer and invite Jesus into your heart. But I can't find that in Scripture. And some preachers say, well, you just need to, you know, believe. That's all you got to do. But James says that even Satan believes in God. Even the devils believe in him and shudder. What do I do? Well, let me just encourage you to do what Jesus said to do. You can look it up yourself. Mark chapter 16, verse 16. Believe and be baptized. It's very simple. And the scripture is very clear. And so if you want to open the gift, you want to accept the gift, you can do that now this morning. And if you've got sin in your life that needs to be taken care of, then you need a savior. And so I invite you this morning as we, um, we're going to, in a moment, just sing this song. And if you like to become a Christian by doing it God's way, by doing what Jesus said to do, uh, I'm going to invite you during this song to go to the back and meet with one of our shepherds and tell them what you desire to do and that you'd like to become a Christian, and they'll show you how to do that. We can do it this morning. If you have a other spiritual need, maybe you are in Christ, but you've really been struggling, uh, they would be happy to pray with you and encourage you, and we can do that as a family as well. If you have a spiritual need, whatever it might be, won't you go to the back as together we stand and sing.